it's blind faith. Meanwhile, they could be completely destroying your career. They could be turning down opportunities that would be really good for you because maybe they're, there's a lot of jealousy also that goes on. You know, there's, you're a dancer. You're a dancer. You are coveted by so many different men. And they have this idea that we are loose, that we are easy, that we will do anything to get ahead. Welcome to Belly Dance Live podcast. My name is Jana Komarnitska. I'm a full-time dancer based in Toronto, performing a variety of Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance styles, including belly dance. You can find me at janadance.com as well as on Insta or Facebook by Jana Dance or Jana Komarnitska. I'm happy you've decided to join us for this weekly dose of dance inspiration because here on this podcast we explore all nuances and insights into lifestyle of ballet dancers and we are having amazing star guests who share their stories, secrets and tips with you. Hello guys, this is another episode of Ballet Dance Live podcast and today I have a very special guest who uh, you know mostly as Luna of Cairo, as her stage name, or Diana Esposito, beautiful dancer uh, who has performed in Egypt's top hotels and now cruises for the past uh, at least nine years. Her very special and unique uh, uh, musical interpretation as well as authentic Egyptian style uh, make her appear in so many top stages of Egypt as well as in many uh, music videos and uh, movies from Egyptian productions. Also, she is a regularly featured teacher at Raya Hassan's Ahava Sahla Festival. And on top of her active dance career, she also holds a master's degree in Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University, where she studied a radical Islamist movement in the Arab world. She is also fluent in Egyptian, Arabic, Spanish, on top of English, and holds a, a BA in Journalism and Political Science. And also, uh, you probably have heard or even read her very interesting blog about uh, her stories and experiences as a foreign ballet dancer in Cairo, which is called uh, Kisses from Cairo. So I'm really excited to uh, dive in all nuances of ballet dance life in general and specifically in Cairo together with uh, Luna today and uh, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Jana. To start our uh, conversation, I know many people probably know you as a successful, uh, internationally known dancer today, but uh, how did your journey into ballet dance started? How did it become your part of your life? <laughs> uh, wow, okay, so that is a question that goes back many years. Basically, when I was in college, my mom opened up a photography studio in Brooklyn, New York. That's where we're from. And in the area that she was in, there was a lot of Arab immigrants, mainly Syrians. And there was a restaurant right next to her studio, and I had never really had any contact with Arabs or Middle Easterners before, but we decided to go in and have dinner. And to our surprise, there was a keyboardist, and then they brought out a belly dancer. And that was the first time I had ever seen belly dance or I had ever heard Arabic music. And I was blown away, um, very impressed, more so by the music 
than by the dancing. Um, I'm very musically inclined, and I just loved what I was hearing, and I kept going back to that place on the weekends. And then I decided to talk to the dancer, and I asked her to give me private lessons, and she agreed. And as we were speaking, we found out that her and I had been in the same ballet school years ago, in the Joffrey Ballet School. So it was kind of a coincidence um, that we met each other again under those circumstances. So she started teaching me privately in her home. And then um, I basically became obsessed. And <laughs> I was looking for classes everywhere and anywhere. And I started taking with um, Amira Moore, who was based in Manhattan at the time. I went to Serena Studios, also in Manhattan. I wound up studying with basically everybody in New York. Jihan, Samara, Yusri Sharif, eventually. So that was the beginning. That's how I started. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that point of uh, uh, beginning Baladin's student to the point that you actually moved to Cairo and became active uh, professional performer there, how did that journey look like and uh, how did the decision to move to Cairo from U.S. Uh, uh, happened? Yeah, um, believe it or not, when I first started learning how to belly dance, even though I did see it in an Arab restaurant, an Arabic restaurant, it didn't occur to me that this is a distinctly Arab dance. Um, Egypt was not part of the equation. I was just really happy with the music and the dance, so I didn't care about the culture behind it or where it came from or what it stood for. But um, I did start developing an interest in the Middle East, an academic interest, as a result of September 11th. I was living in New York, as I told you, so I happened to be there when that happened, and that pretty much changed my life forever. I decided that I want to learn Arabic. I want to understand what this ideology is about, radical Islamic terrorism. So I basically, um, when I was in college, I decided that I would take as many courses on Middle Eastern history and politics and religion as I can. And then one thing led to another. I decided to study Arabic in Egypt in 2004. So I did that at the university, the American University of Cairo, and I met the organizers of a folklore troupe there, and we became friendly, so I figured, okay, well, I'm here, I might as well take some folkloric classes. We became really good friends, me and, and him and his family, and I brought them to New York the following summer to do a workshop, a folkloric Reda-style workshop. And then they told me that I should come back to Egypt and attend Rakia Hassan's Ahlan Wasahlan Festival. Uh, so I did that in 2006. And that was the first time that I had been exposed to real Egyptian-style belly dancing. And of course, there were, there were artists from all over the world. And I was still a beginner at that point. And watching these women on stage really, really made me determined to study as much as I can and also to study in Egypt. I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to learn how to dance this way if I just stay in the United States because nobody in the U.S. dances this way. So that was the summer of 2006. And from that point on, I put it in my head, I'm going back to Egypt. 
I'm going to live in Egypt no matter what it takes. And all I wanted to do was study. I didn't want to perform or work there. I didn't even know that that was possible. But I went back home. I enrolled in the master's program in Harvard University. That was a two-year program. And when I was doing that, I was coming up with ways that I could go to Egypt. So I decided to apply for a Fulbright scholarship from the State Department of the U.S. government. And I proposed that I would write a book about belly dancing and about how it's been able to survive in Egypt despite the increasing Islamist influences that were sweeping over the country. Um, the Fulbright Commission liked my proposal and they agreed to give me a grant for nine months. So I went to Egypt in September of 2008 and I started doing my research. Primarily I was interviewing Bentley dancers. I was um, going into the archives and picking up sources and translating and doing all of this stuff. And within six months of my stay, I was offered work as a dancer. Somebody had seen me at, um, I attended another one of Rakia's festivals at that time, and someone had seen me, and they asked me if I would like to work as a dancer, and I said, okay, I'll try. It was to CD, and it was about two and a half hours outside of Cairo, along the Red Sea. There's a lot of beach resorts there. So very little money, um, but it didn't matter to me. And I really enjoyed performing. My audience was Egyptian families, and they were very appreciative. And the whole thing was just so nice and different than what I was used to. And I kept doing it twice a week, and then three times a week, and then four times a week. And then somebody that used to work with me there recommended me to do an audition on a Nile cruise. It was called the Nile Memphis. And I passed that audition. But they had never had foreign dancers before, so the whole thing was new to them. Mm. So what they did was they applied for a license to hire foreign dancers from the government. That took a few months. And then when that was finished, they gave me a contract and made my papers. So that is how it started. And uh, how about the book? Uh, did it uh, get published? The book is still a work in progress. Um, I originally intended it to be academic and historical, but then after living there for so long, I decided to change the, the focus. I think there has been a lot written about belly dancing from a historical, from a sociological point of view, but from a first-person point of view, there's not much. I mean, I've had this crazy, insane, amazingly rewarding career in a part of the world where most people don't go unless they really have to, or they only go for vacation. And I said, I need to make this book about me. Um, I need to make this about what I'm experiencing and seeing. And of course, you know, the culture and the history will be reflected in that. This is not just about my journey, but about the context. What is the social and political and religious context that I am operating in. So that's the direction that my book is taking. It is going to take a while. I, I guess you could say I post bits and pieces of it on my blog. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to figure out how to tie everything together into a novel or a narrative format. I really enjoy writing um, because 
the things that I've seen and that have happened to me are very, very almost fictional. Mm. Really, I, I lived through the revolution. Um, I <laughs> stayed in Egypt after that. I've had some really difficult, painful experiences as, some, as well as some really educational and happy ones. So I, I have a lot to write about. Yeah, I was just about to mention that it's probably... I'm looking forward. I was curious, like, is this book published? <laughs> I want to, to see, no. to read it, like, if it's already exists. Because you also capture, like, although there is a lot written from historical, so, um, sociological point of view about ballot dance, but you're also capturing the recent events and years that changed probably so dramatically everything in Egypt, including ballot dance scenes. So... I was very uh, curious to to read <laughs> all those uh, research and observations that you collected and uh, put it together. Well, looking forward to the book. Hope we'll see it uh, um, in the world very soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> something else that captured my attention in what you said, uh, kind of back to your experience of your first tra- trip to uh, Egypt, or one of the first ones, you mentioned that you got a strong feeling that you need to come back to Egypt and study dance there because the style that you saw was very different from what you used to see in uh, U.S., even in those Middle Eastern restaurants that you started uh, your ballet dance journey, uh, I mean, to study with those uh, performers. What was the significant differences like what exactly if you can try to put a description of dance in the words but what exactly captured you and made you come back and eventually stay in Egypt about this style specifically at that point I really wasn't aware of this thing called feeling or musical interpretation but but my beginner eye did notice that there was and a, a substantial difference in technical prowess. The dancers that I saw in Egypt, whether they were Egyptians or foreigners, had so much amazing technique. And I just didn't see that on the dancers in the U.S. Um, as I began to study and understand the dance more, I understood that there is something called musical interpretation, which is what a lot of people like to call feeling, quote-unquote. Um, then I really started to appreciate that. That was another layer of it for me. But um, the nuance and the depth and the artistry, it was totally lacking in the U.S. Um, what I saw in the U.S. was prop work, dancing with swords. Now they dance with fire and all, all sorts of really weird things and fan veils. And I found the Egyptian dancers and the foreign dancers over there to be much more entertaining and much more engaging without doing all of that. And I said, this is what I want to do. That's interesting. Uh, sometimes less is actually more <laughs> in terms of, I guess, props and show effects. Uh, but yeah. that's very interesting to hear. Although in terms of technique, I would say that, no, the, the girls over there in Egypt, they have way much more technique. Um, than what most dancers have in this part of the world. Mm. Uh, you also mentioned uh, 
that uh, when you got hired uh, by uh, Nile Cruz, they it was their first experience uh, hiring foreign dancer. They had to apply for special license uh, for this. Was there anything else special that you experienced in Egypt as a ballet dance performer and specifically as a foreign ballet dance uh, performer that would would have been different if you were local dancer? Anything special that I experienced because I'm a foreigner that would have been Yeah, absolutely. Um, they tend, Egyptians tend to fetishize foreign dancers, especially if they're coming from the U.S. and Europe, if they have a certain look, which is basically light-skinned, tall, curvy but well-proportioned. They are obsessed with that aesthetic, and they're also impressed with our work ethic. Something as simple as just showing up for work on time, or just showing up for work, mm-hmm. because a lot of Egyptian dancers, for some unknown reason, they just sometimes don't go to work, and then that, obviously, that's really bad for business. Um, so yeah, you know, and I'm not saying that the aesthetic thing is, you know, a good thing, but it is reality. It is it's what they like. It's what they hire. Yeah, I don't think that I would have been given as much work if I were an Egyptian unless I, I think I think what I'm trying to say is I would have have to prove myself a lot more I'd have to be really 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 mm. amazing in anyone to look in my direction if I were an Egyptian dancer just because there's so many of them and I think that a lot of Egyptian business owners are just sick of dealing with them because of these problems that happen um, unfortunately you know they can be very unprofessional when they do go to work and they found in foreigners people who are trustworthy, people who get the job done professionally, people who are passionate about their work. And of course, um, that's just, that's valuable anywhere in the world in any field of work. So right now, most of the top venues, even people who have weddings, they're, they're going for foreigners. They don't even think about hiring Egyptians. It's unfortunate, but People want what they want. Right. Market is market, I guess. Uh, but uh, uh, very interesting because you basically are right now sort of destroyed one of the myths that uh, I commonly hear and I thought myself too, that everyone is talking, oh, there is not many actual Egyptian dancers because locals, Egyptians, they don't think it's a prestige. They don't let their uh, family members to go and start dancing. But now you're saying basically there's so many Egyptian dancers, uh, at least inside Egypt, that's very interesting, like something new for me, for at least to, to hear. Well, it, it's true. They... It's not something that's seen as prestigious. It's not something that a parent wants their daughter to do. Um, but yes, there's so there's not a lot of star Egyptian dancers, but there are thousands and thousands of just local Egyptian dancers working in really bad cabarets, really you know, low-class, third-rate nightclubs. So yes, they exist, but they're not stars. And, you know, unless you're inside Cairo, or Egypt, and inside the market, you're never going to know about them. Mm, that's interesting. We only see what we sort of uh, 
allowed to see outside the culture, but there's always so much more inside it, and it's completely different than you just uh, sort of observing or looking from outside, or once you in it, and uh, uh, so many things discovering, so... You only see what is on the workshop circuit. Right. You see Dina, you see Rhonda, you see Aziza, you see Camelia, um, Sahar. Other than that, mm, yeah, you won't see the rest because they don't do the festival circuit. Mm. And they couldn't. They couldn't. They don't have the level or the mastery to be doing that. Do you think for a ballet dance performer who wants to work uh, in Cairo and or in Egypt in general and develop their career is there any specific sort of path that or you start with these kind of gigs and then you go to these kind of gigs or it sort of really depends and i don't know like you right away need to aim for something like is there any i don't know a career ladder <laughs> some prototype as we have in corporate world world is there anything like that in ballet dance or not at all not really um it depends on your contacts on who you know so There's girls, a lot of them are from Russia and Ukraine. They come straight to Egypt and they they have this manager who signs five-year contracts with them, exclusive contracts, and he basically does everything for them. He gets them their costumes, um, he provides them with housing, he gets them all their work, and this guy pretty much, um, he's a big shot. He has connections in government, in media, in production, so... He can make these girls famous. There's a lot of disadvantages to working with someone like that. I mean, he's got a very bad reputation for a reason. I I dealt with him for a while. He wanted to sign me up, and um, I did not like how he was acting and the terms of his contract. And you know what? There are dancers who tolerate that and put up with that, and that's fine. It's a personal choice. I chose not to. Other dancers, or for somebody like me that came before this person was even around... We basically just set up in Cairo. I found myself an apartment. I attended festivals. Um, one thing led to another. People offered me opportunities to dance here and there, on this boat, on that boat, in this hotel, and I just basically did everything. And I wound up widening my social circle and my circle of professional contacts. And the more people you know, the more business you get. Um, so that's, you know, that's the way people who don't sign up with a manager do it. They start doing CD work in the beginning, mm-hmm. then they might move up to boats. Boats, the boats are not considered the most prestigious venues. Um, and that's because most of the audiences are tourists, um, and because the boats themselves, they're not the five-star hotels. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think they're the best venues because... Usually you don't have the management or the owner trying to take advantage of you. You get to work every single night, sometimes two and three and four and five and six times a night. You always have work. In the hotels, because they know the dancers really want to work there, that's when they start putting demands on them. Okay, well, you can dance here, but you're going to have to give me something in return. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem with the hotels. And then the work is seasonal in the spring, in the summer, Um And it depends on Arab tourism. So Arabs from the Gulf, they usually come around that time, around the spring and the summer. It's not really the case anymore because now they're looking, they go to Europe for their vacations, they go to France, they go to Belgium. So the Arab tourism is starting to really trickle. 
So, as a result, work in hotels is not steady, and it's not guaranteed, and there's a lot of crap that dancers have to put up with. The boats just don't have these issues. Hmm. And that they are better venues all around to develop a career in. And how the wedding uh, uh, performance scene goes into that? Or is it something completely different from a regular uh, venue's uh, performances? Yeah, it's usually pretty different. Um, on the boats, there are Egyptian people that come and see you, and some of them can hire you for weddings, and that's happened. But it's not usually the case, um, because your audiences are mainly tourists. Also in the hotels, your audiences are tourists, but they're Arab tourists, so they're not getting married in Cairo. Um, basically, you get your weddings through agents. There's a whole bunch of them in Egypt, and you basically, you should have a manager. Most dancers wind up having their boyfriends become their manager or their husbands. But whatever the case, um, your manager sends them pictures or videos and goes and sits with them and hangs out and tells them how much you take for a show and this and that. And then when customers, when clients are booking catering halls or hotels to get married, if they want entertainment, they'll ask for the entertainment manager who will then put them in touch with the agent who will then show them pictures and videos and allow them to choose the dancer that they want. Mm. And uh, I remember uh, you quite often write in your blog, as well as uh, I follow you on Facebook, so I see a lot of your Facebook posts, uh, you wrote quite a lot about this relationship with agents and how much dancer is often dependent on the agent. And I even remember you uh, wrote about your uh, unfortunate experience with some of the agents. I just wanted like a little bit to go into this topic because uh, on one hand, uh, Uh, like I'm talking from my own experience as a being a working ballet dancer, but in Toronto where the idea of agents doesn't really exist, uh, at least not if you're trying to be a full-time dancer, you sort of need to do it on your own. And sometimes I wish like, oh, I so much wish I had an agent like all those dancers in Egypt. And then I go and read something uh, like about those experience of how dancers actually dependent on the agent and then I was like oh no I guess better to be <laughs> on my own working so uh, can you uh, tell a little bit about what exactly the role of agent is uh, for dancer and if uh, there are any advantages or disadvantages of working with agent as well is it possible to be in Cairo an active dancer without agent yeah that's a good question um. I just want to start by saying that there's a difference between an agent and a manager. Mm. Like I said before, the agent is the person who has contacts with hotels and with wedding catering halls, and they have pictures of all the dancers, and they're the ones who suggest a dancer uh, for a certain party. The manager's manager is the person who basically manages a particular dancer, and sometimes you have a manager who can manage several dancers. But usually what happens is a girl winds up having a boyfriend or getting married, and then, of course, because the man is the leader in the relationship, he has to take over everything in her life, including her work. It's just the way it happens there. It happened to me. It happened to every single dancer there that I know, with the exception of maybe two. Yes, we become very dependent on them. You have to understand, oh, and this also happens with Egyptian dancers. Mm -hmm. their, their husbands become their managers. Um, 
with I'm I'm just gonna talk about the foreigners though. Um, mm-hmm. We're at a huge disadvantage. We're coming to a strange, foreign country, with extremely different um, norms of behavior, extremely different expectations, extremely different mannerisms, cultures, customs, religion. We're extremely uncomfortable. There's a lot of things that we don't know, at least in the beginning. There's a lot of things we don't agree with, and there's a lot of people trying to take advantage of us. So then here comes Mr. Boyfriends slash Mr. Manager, who is here to basically rescue you and save your life. Or this is how they put it. This is how they say it. Well, you know, I'm I'm the one who's protecting you. I need to take care of you. I need to make sure that no one's trying to hurt you, right? So this becomes how they inject themselves into your professional life. So basically, every time somebody calls you on the phone for a job, they'll take the phone and they'll talk to the person. Um, Sometimes they answer your phone for you. They're the ones who are agreeing with the client how much you're getting. Um, Of course, you know, there's supposed to be transparency. He's supposed to be telling you all the details, but most of these girls don't speak Arabic. They don't understand what's happening. Or maybe... Um, your manager slash boyfriend or husband will be talking to the clients when he's not in front of you. So you really don't know what's going on. You really don't know the details of the deal. And 99% of the time, they're not going to be upfront about it and be honest because they're taking a big commission. Um, Like I said, I'm talking from personal experience. I'm also talking from what I've seen with other dancers. Um, So you're left in the dark and you have this man who you trust with all your life because you have nobody else but him in this strange foreign country. And it's blind faith. Meanwhile, they could be completely destroying your career. They could be turning down opportunities that would be really good for you because maybe they're mm. there's a lot there's a lot of jealousy also that goes on. You know, there's you're a dancer. You're a dancer, you are coveted by so many different men and they have this idea that we are loose that we are easy, that we will do anything to get ahead. So in my case, my manager was afraid that if I met with a certain movie producer, that I would leave him to go have a relationship with the movie producer because, of course, I want to advance my career. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But, you know, the things that come up into these guys' heads because they're extremely insecure, all they want to do is control you, manipulate you, and... Basically, it's all for, so that they could take a, a huge cut of your salary. Mm. Um, that's what prompts them to act the way they do. And the foreign dancer just doesn't know any better, at least in the beginning. She has to go through this for years and years until she finally wakes up and realizes that she's being cheated out of her money, cheated out of her career. She's not allowed to do this. She's not allowed to do that. You can't talk to the clients. You can't talk to the agents. It's hard. can't talk to the musicians. Uh It's hard. They try to isolate you so that you don't have any other... It's like a communist country. It's like what they do in Cuba. They're not, you know, you're not allowed to watch any TV channels coming outside of Cuba. You're not allowed to have contact with foreigners or this and that. And it's all just for the purpose of keeping control over you and making money off of you. And these girls think that it's love because the men say it's love. Oh, I love you. I care about you. I'm just protecting you because all the people in this business, they're trash. Everybody wants to sleep with you. Everybody, yeah, everybody wants to sleep with you. But the thing is, nobody rapes you. Nobody forces you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what happens there.
I guess uh, the saying uh, not uh, without a reason that women love by ears. <laughs> so we are too trusty if we hear nice words. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember that post of yours on, I believe it was on Facebook, or maybe it was a blog and you shared it on Facebook, then you described all the situation. And uh, it was very um, unfortunate to hear all that uh, struggles and uh, all that, I don't know, almost say dirt that goes uh, behind uh, the scenes. And we see like ballet dance, shiny, glamorous pictures on stage. And then there is so much going really behind uh, uh, behind the screens, let's say, of our computers or our phones or wherever we see all those things. So, sorry to hear about the situation. I know you also speak uh, Arabic. So, I don't know, did you came, you came to Egypt to learn uh, Arabic, but then you start doing belly dance performances. Was you already sort of fluid or not? Like, I kind of tried to get to the question, like, was there any situations that you know in Arabic language that it helped or saved you from some unfortunate uh, situations? Were there any occasions like that? No, actually, it's the opposite. Um, yes, I'm completely fluent. I studied formal Arabic for a total of three years before I moved to Egypt in 2008. And then when I got to Egypt, I started learning the Egyptian dialect because it is different than the classical. Um, and, of course, I did that out of love for the language. I absolutely love the language. I... I find it very easy for some reason. It just works for me. Um, and it only makes sense that you would learn the language of the place that you're in. And of course, I thought that this would give me an advantage and a heads up. Not at all. Mm. Um, what happened was Egyptians treat each other differently than they treat foreigners. So yes, they may try to take advantage of foreigners, but face to face, they treat you with respect because they're afraid of you and because they want something from you. The way they treat each other is a little bit different. Um, I characterize it as a total lack of respect in, in the majority of cases. Um, so I was mistaken for Egyptian a lot of times. People just forgot that I'm a foreigner because of my language capability mm. and because they see me every day. So I've, I found myself getting tied up in things that I never would have gotten tied up in if I didn't speak Arabic. So, but still, I mean, I don't regret any of it because it's, it's been a huge learning experience for me. And at the end of the day, I can say I speak Arabic. You know, how many other foreign dancers can say that? Not too many. So I did come out with a very practical skill that's going to help me theoretically find a job here. Um, not only that, but yes, I suffered a lot because of it, but I, it was an insight for me into people's daily lives and mentalities there are so many things that that I saw and that I heard that would have gone over my head if I didn't speak Arabic. So I think I understand the culture a lot better than most people who spend time there that don't speak Arabic. I think I've seen things that most people never would have seen. So it's not a bad thing. Mm. But it's uh, very unexpected to hear uh, absolutely like opposite perspective that the language actually didn't help it put in a... Um, more, let's say, difficult situation as a foreign dancer in, in Cairo because we keep hearing like, oh, you need to learn Arabic. Like, but I understand it's from different uh, reasons. Like, as a dancer, we need to learn our language to understand songs and we are dancing for, but then you are saying that you are there in Cairo, active performer, and it actually sort of uh, make you disservice <laughs> the knowledge of language. Very interesting yeah. uh, 
in those nine years that you are working in Cairo, did you notice any changes in Baladem's scene throughout those years? Yes, absolutely. This change basically occurred over the past three or four years. There's been a lot of foreign dancers coming. Many of them, I'd say most of them are from Russia and Ukraine. And they have, you know, a very distinct style. People call it Russian style or people call it competition style, whatever it is. But it's very, very athletic. Um, it's very big. It's nice, um, but it's not what... It's not what people come to Egypt for. It's not what it's not what I came to Egypt to learn. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is the style that is really taking over at this point, to the point where there are certain Egyptian dancers who are following the Russian lead and starting to dance like them, very fast, very powerful, very big. And like I said, you know, it's a style. You can either like it or not like it. But I feel like it's consuming the entire dance scene there and. There's very few people now who are doing regular rakshaki that are that soft, subtle, nuanced style. It's it's basically disappearing, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think you know Russian style it has its place, but to be taking over Egypt, I I personally I have a problem with that, and it's part of the reason why I left. It's I didn't. I don't see myself as a part of the scene anymore. I don't dance like that. I don't aspire to dance like that. I, I, I made a huge effort to dance as much like an Egyptian as I can. Um, I think as foreigners, we all have a tendency to dance very big and very violently sometimes. And I did too, because I'm American. I was trained in ballet and hip-hop and jazz. So to me, movement and dance means big movement. So I made a huge effort to stop that when I came to Egypt. And now I see that, oh, that's what's required? Yeah, I just, I don't see myself in that anymore. And I just decided, no, this is not the place for me anymore. Well, it's uh, interesting to see in the future. Is it going to be in some real... Uh let's say, grand changes in this style and dance form? Or is it just some fancy trends that, who knows, may disappear in a few years and come back uh, uh, to the previous? Because as they say, all new is uh, good forgotten old. <laughs> Did the Egyptian revolution had any influence on the dance scene? It did temporarily. Um, of course, as the revolution was happening... There was no dancing, there was no singing, there was just no business anywhere. Um, and then, you know, after about three months, things started to pick up little by little. My boat, for example, instead of sailing before the revolution, it would sail four and five times a day. Um, of course, right after the revolution, it wasn't sailing at all. And then about two months into it, maybe once a week, and then twice a week, and then three times a week, it started picking up. Mm-hmm. A lot of cabarets were closed. A lot of <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> a lot of cabarets were attacked and burned by the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafi fanatics. Um, other nightclubs were bought by these fanatics and converted into mosques. Mm. Some were converted into department stores. But it doesn't really matter because things have basically gone back to normal at this point. And the places that closed down, well, there are so many other new places that have opened up. 
So it was just a temporary low in the business. Of course, when Mohamed Morsi came into power, there was always the fear that they would prohibit dancing. Um, it was a very real fear for all of us. Thank God, 2013, uh, the Egyptian army kicked the Brotherhood out. I, I thank God for that day. And everything is back to normal. So I guess during those years, it was uh, extremely almost dangerous to be a dancer in Egypt after that 2013 was it a bit better like in those last uh, recent years can you say it is safe to be a dancer in Egypt yeah I mean I think it's always been safe I've never really felt it was unsafe um, not even like during the revolution I never felt unsafe on stage yes maybe going to my show and coming back the streets were not safe there were you know criminals and and gangs all over the place. Yes, that was not safe. Cairo was not safe. Egypt was not safe. But but dancing itself wasn't a problem. Um, during the earlier phases of the revolution, there was a curfew. So people had to, were technically supposed to be home by 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or whatever it was. So that made it really difficult for places to have dancing because dancing always happens at night. Little by little, they started pushing the curfew back further and further uh, until it just disappeared mm. yeah I mean I think people I think dancers were more afraid for their futures than they were about anything else that was happening at that time there is one paragraph from one of your recent blogs that really uh, caught my attention and I just want to uh, read it right now and uh, ask you sort of to reflect from the position that where you are now that you left Cairo and how you now would feel about it but basically you were uh, writing about the fact that it's very difficult to leave Cairo <laughs> and stop dancing and just because you're so much used to that lifestyle and um, uh, what you've wrote is that one of the reasons so many dancers don't go home is because of the addiction. Performing every night is like a drug. After a while you may not even love it anymore but you can't stop because you need it and because it's who you are you cannot imagine yourself doing anything else because that would require that you think of yourself as a different person and that's painful this is one of the reasons dancers in egypt don't retire like ever even then they really need to so how do you feel now about it that you left Cairo? I don't know if you have any plans on coming back soon or is it a sort of permanent leave but uh, uh, sort of taking yourself out of that lifestyle of everyday performing. How how you feel now that kind of dense drug <laughs> that was a part of your life for so many years? Um, I stand by what I said. It is extremely difficult. I The one thing I am proud of myself for and I give myself a lot of credit for is the fact that I was able to make this decision to leave. Um, I don't plan on going back anytime soon. I, I'm done with it. Um, I will go back to visit, of course, but not to resettle and dance again. I just basically, I got real with myself. I said, I've been here for 10 years. Every day is like yesterday. Nothing new. Um, I dance every single day. I do a wedding. I do a boat. I do a hotel. Somebody asked me to do a music video. 
great. Okay, so I've done this a million times. All these other dancers are doing the same thing. What does all of this mean? I don't even get enjoyment out of it anymore. And whether or not I do this music video, for example, makes no difference because there's 50 million other dancers doing music videos. So what's the point? But yeah, I mean, like I said, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I said, there's no point. I came to Egypt for this. I, I never would have come to Egypt to live in Egypt had it not been for this because Egypt is not... It's not an easy country to live in. It's extremely filthy, extremely polluted. It's chaotic. Your people act strange. It's it's just not an ideal place to live. So without this reason for me to be there, I said, enough. I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my time. Um, life is short. And I don't want this to be the only thing that I do in my life, especially if I'm not enjoying it. So also... My personal life was a complete disaster, and I'm in my, my 30s, so I never really considered my personal life before, but I am starting to now, and I think that this has to take uh, precedence over anything else. I, mean, I cannot have a healthy personal life or a social life in Egypt. I just can't because of people's mentality. It's very different from my mentality. The way they treat each other, the way they treat women, the way they answers, it was just impossible. So I said, I need to get myself out of here. And it was painful on so many different levels. Of course, I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision, only because I said, oh my God, I put in so much hard work and tears and and pain to do what I did, and now I'm just going to pick up and leave and destroy it. But at the end of the day, I said, I don't care. I'll destroy it. But I am not happy here anymore. So... There's no reason for me to stay. Well, I can only imagine how painful it is, but it's definitely very brave to just be able to go and explore something else and something new because I feel there's so much stuck often to something that we kept doing for a long time just because for the sake of keep doing it. It's all we put so much time in it. So why, why to leave? Yeah, exactly. No, it's easier. You know, it's very difficult. People are pretty much averse to change. That is normal human nature. Um, and, and 10 years is enough. It's a lot. And 10 years, you know, the best years of my life I put into this country. So I said, I need to stop being fearful of what can happen if I leave. And I'm going to recreate my life. Mm. So actually, you know, it's only been a month. It will be exactly a month tomorrow. Um, so far, I'm at peace with myself. I'm at peace with my decision. I'm very happy being home. I feel like I've been released from a prison. No joke. I'm not just. I'm not just saying this. I really do. I, feel mm -hmm. like I have been released from jail, or like I've died and gone to heaven, or I just feel free and liberated. So I'm pretty sure I made the right decision. Well, congratulations on that, and if it feels good, it's definitely the right one. And good luck with your further exploration of your life and path, and I'm sure it will be awesome and uh, at least not, not less exciting, but I'm sure even more exciting than the previous pages. Um, just let us know, please, are you planning to keep dance in your future <laughs> or you're trying to keep something changing completely to something different <laughs> yeah so i'm trying to do both um i 
right now I'm taking a lot of different types of dance classes. I'm taking West African dance, which I love, and it is my new addiction. I'm taking Haitian classes, and that's really fun too. And I like it because it's so different from belly dance. It's it's the place where you can be big with your movements, and you can be strong, and you can be violent, and you can let it all out. And it's not like belly dance where you have to contain yourself and make it small and nuanced. So that's a lot of fun. Um, also, I want to get a regular job, but I will continue to teach dancing, belly dancing. I want to become more active on the festival and workshop circuit. Um, I think that I need to capitalize on everything that I did in Egypt. I put in all this effort and all this money. <laughs> yes, money. It cost me a lot to be there. I didn't make money. So I think it's my turn now to, to reap the benefits of what I did. Um, I am, like I said, I'm teaching workshops. I have a couple of festivals coming up. I'm going to do something in Florida, and then I'm going to China, and then I'll be back. Um, I offer Skype lessons. I translate songs for people, and I am going to start teaching Egyptian Arabic. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that I can do mm. in the dance world. And I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm extremely happy to hear that we still will keep seeing you on the dance scene. Uh, that <laughs> uh, That's really, uh, really nice and to really make me happy. Um, good luck with your further exploration. And I can only repeat that I believe it's super brave and... Uh, uh, it's a sign of strong personality to just be ready to close one page of life and try to switch to something new and uh, not that yet defined, but just be open for new opportunities and new explorations and uh, seeing where life will lead. Because as you said, we have only one life and life is short. So uh, that's something inspiring for people I think not only dance-wise, but in any fields of the life. Sometimes we just need to let let the hold off to to be able to move further and uh, uh, find uh, new things and uh, new aspects of happiness, I guess. <laughs> and uh, um, before I ask our final podcast question, uh, can you please tell people where they can find you, where they can uh, follow you uh, the best and uh, what's upcoming nearest trips? Yes, okay. Um, I think the easiest place to find me is on Facebook. <laughs> um, uh, no, but okay, so physically I am based in New York City, also based in Tampa, Florida, but I travel around a lot. I was just in Michigan for some workshops, and then I was in Chicago, and then, like I said, I will be in Gainesville, Florida on May 19th and 20th, doing some workshops there with Najma Noor and Aurelia, I can't pronounce her last name, um, and then right after that, I'm going to China, Beijing, to do workshops on the 26th and 7th, and then I'll be back in the New York area, but yes, people can keep up with me on Facebook. My real name, my Facebook name is Diana Esposito. Um, I will be posting a lot on my blog in the upcoming days. There was a lot of stuff that I had written that I was not able to share when I was in Egypt for different reasons. So I'll be putting that up there. Um, of course, I have my YouTube channel and my videos. The YouTube channel is Luna of Cairo. And I'll also be offering Skype lessons. So I'm pretty accessible. 
That's exciting. And I definitely put all links to your social media, like Instagram, Facebook, uh, uh, YouTube. So for people, it's easier to find and follow you as well as to your blog. And I highly encourage everyone who is listening now, go subscribe to to blog or at least to Facebook page because uh, Luna really puts a lot of interesting insights and uh, um interesting posts about stuff that we don't really hear much dancers talking about so i'll encourage you to to go and find and follow her so we sort of have our signature podcast question that i keep um, asking people all the time regardless of our main topic of the interview and how it went uh, and you're welcome to interpret it in whatever way you want okay it just your 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 feeling and your your reaction but the question is what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so that you keep doing it for so many years it would have to be the music i love 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 the music um i actually played clarinet when i was younger and studied music, so I learned how to read it, write it. I've forgotten all those skills, but my point is I have always been musically inclined, and I'm in love with the classics, with Um Kulthum, with Abdel Halim, everybody at Warda, Farid Al-Atrash. You know, I think the problem with Western dancers or, or non-Egyptian dancers is that we only hear the new versions of these songs made by people like Safa, Egypt. We only hear four or five minutes of each song, but these songs, the originals, can go up to two and a half, three hours. It's like a whole symphony, and you listen to this, and a song like Mawawood, for example, or Inta Omri, there are so many changes and transitions, and maybe one part of the song doesn't seem to have um, a relationship with like another part of the song, but it is so beautiful and so interesting, and and these composers put in their entire souls into their work and it's the music that inspires me to dance it's not the dancing that inspires me to dance i will just listen to a piece of music and i'm like oh my god this is so beautiful how can i not dance to this and that's what happens to me over and over again yeah it's it's not the dance it is the music definitely mm. I love that phrase uh, that you just said. It's music that inspires me to dance. It's not a dance that inspires me to dance. Uh, it's nice. I mean, it's uh, sort of contradicting from to hear from dancing, but it's so much true that we get our inspiration from so many different sources, and music is a huge one. So thank you for sharing. It's uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and uh, also, I'd like to thank you so much for... Uh, taking your time to be today here on podcast and sharing your experience, uh, sweet and bitter, <laughs> all of it together with us <laughs> and uh, sharing your uh, insights and your story so that dancers can have uh, both uh, perspectives, I guess, and views. One is that glamorous that we see from our social media and uh, people like wanting to go to Egypt and, and become the stars and dancers. And at the same time, knowing that there is a lot of behind the scene that we don't see. So each medal has both sides. So thank you to sharing it openly and uh, uh, being vulnerable and, and honest too with all our listeners today. 
Well, and I thank you for agreeing to do this podcast with me. Um, I think you had a great set of questions, and I hope that people find this informative in some way. I'm absolutely sure, and also looking forward to your new blog post, as well as uh, your upcoming book, hopefully, in the nearest future. Inshallah, as the Egyptians say. (laughs) Guys, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And if you like this episode, it will mean a world to me if you take a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes or share it with your friends. Also, you can always find more information about podcast as well as past episodes at yanadance.com slash podcast. As well as you can connect with me on social media by yanadance or Yana Komarnitska. I'm very active on Instagram as well as Facebook and share a lot of tips and inspiration for your daily ballet dance life. And by the way, don't forget to subscribe to podcasts so you never miss a future episode. And until next time, keep shimming.